Thank you, Pastor Chris. Let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And I trust that all the songs and words that we have sung have been the prayer of your heart. And it's my prayer for us that now as we open up God's Word that we would engage all the more. This isn't the time to be passive, it's the time to be active and to engage God's Word as we hear it preached. We'll be in Matthew chapter 5 and, and I invite you to follow along with me as I read verses 21 through 26. Hear the words of our Lord. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Well, as with many of you, the Sears family has been uh, caught up in the swell uh, and fanhood of the Marvel Avengers movies. Um, I know uh, many of you have been keeping up over the last 10 years. Hard to believe it's been 10 years of these movies. I, I grew up, I wasn't into comics. I'm still not into comics. Um, but uh, I guess I've been sucked in a little bit with uh, the comic book movies, if you will. And, and even if you're, if you're not into this, you, you're probably at least familiar with these things from afar. Well, uh, we're, we're eagerly anticipating, I guess in April, uh, the last installment and hoping that good will triumph over the evil Thanos and all the world will be put into right order. Well, my family and I, we've been pretty intrigued by these things. My kids dress up as Avengers for Halloween or, or just for fun. Um, I, I have to admit that, that I would like a suit of armor like Iron Man. That would be pretty cool. Well, we are united in our affection for the movie. There is some debate in our household as to who the, the best Avenger is. And as I look at my my kids, I, I see them, and, and I'm assuming that they're choosing their character based on the one that they most identify with. And, and this is a bit concerning because Luke, who has yet to see any of the movies, somehow has figured out his affection is for the Incredible Hulk. And um, he will come down, and, and we know what he means when he says, smash, smash. Uh, that means he's ready to destroy and if you know anything about the Hulk, you know his superpower is uh, incredible strength. 
but it's coupled with an uncontrollable temper, and I, I think that fits our son pretty well. He has seemingly super strength, can climb and scale the walls, and he can smash things. Well, in one of the movies, Bruce Banner, this is his normal side, his tempered side, if you will, the the genius scientist who turns into the Hulk, um, he reveals his secret as to how he controls him. And in one of the first Avenger movies, if you're familiar with these, there's alien invaders flying in. New York City is under attack. They need someone to smash, and Bruce comes up and... Captain America looks to Bruce and says, it's time for you to get angry. To which Bruce replies, that's my secret, Captain. I'm always angry. And at that moment, bursts out and begins to smash all of New York City into smithereens. Well, I think many people learn to deal with their anger much like Bruce Banner. The secret is, I'm always angry. It's a matter of how can I contain it? How can I bottle it up? How can I manage it? How can I deal with it? They don't uproot it. They simply learn to suppress it. Maybe you're familiar with some of these uh, mechanisms for dealing with anger. Uh, Count to 10. Take a deep breath. Maybe you just need to take a time out. Others of you, maybe you need to buy a punching bag, to get it all out. And we, we have these mechanisms all, uh, I think, with the purpose of not really dealing with it, but just letting it out, letting the rage out in some way or, or helping us back off from the cliff so that we, we do not explode into rage, at least when we don't want to. Let's do that when no one's looking. Well, this morning, I want us to learn not just how to manage our anger, but actually learn how to rightly kill it, how to repent of it. And if you've been with us over the past few weeks, we've, we've entered into a section of Scripture called this Sermon on the Mount, the, the greatest sermon ever preached, if you will. This is our Lord Jesus Christ preaching and presenting his gospel of the kingdom, his, his message of God's righteousness and calling people to repentance and in following him. And specifically, Jesus instructs his followers to, to come be his disciples and learn a way of living which aligns with God's righteousness, not our own. A way of living which aligns with God's will, God's character, and his coming kingdom. And this way of living as followers and disciples of Christ, Jesus says, brings true and lasting happiness. As the new and greater Moses and the one who has brought all God's promises to fulfillment, Jesus is calling us to a greater righteousness. That is a a whole person way of living whereby we are transformed by the power of the gospel from the inside out. Jesus is not primarily concerned with how we look on the outside, but his concern is on who we are on the inside. All those mechanisms for dealing with anger is like washing the outside of the cup but not cleansing the inside. 
They're just mechanisms to cloak, but never to deal with it. And although we may look good on the outside, Jesus reminds us that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. They were good at cleaning up the outside. They looked holy, but they were not on the inside. And so Jesus moves from several topics, several areas, and he shows us that, yes, your actions do matter, but it's, it actually starts from the heart. And so today, as we sit at the feet of Jesus' teaching, I want, us to help, I want to help us see how as God's kingdom people, as followers of Jesus, those who claim to be his disciples, how we are to view our anger but also how we are to deal with it. I want us to learn, in the words of Jesus, how the virtues of the kingdom, the Beatitudes, verses 3 through 12 of this chapter, are to rule over our sinful inclinations to unrighteous anger. All that we have kind of studied leading up to this, this is where the rubber meets the road. How is it that I am poor in spirit? How do I mourn? How am I to be meek? How am I to hunger and thirst for righteousness? How am I to be merciful, pure in heart, a peacemaker? How are these virtues to play out? And Jesus says, well, let me give you one scenario. In order to do that, I want us to see really two things this morning. I want us to see the severity of anger and the priority of reconciliation. Because what we're going to see is that we don't just want to manage our anger, cloak our anger, wash the outside of the cup, and, and get ourselves under control after we have just let it all out in the other room. No, Jesus calls us to a greater righteousness, a, a better way of living a, a, that transforms us as followers of Jesus. Let's consider the severity of anger. In these verses, Jesus aims to reveal the true intent of God's law. We, we see this. You have heard that it was said of those of old. He's talking about the, the Old Testament, but, but likely uh, the, the traditions of the fathers, which he's not necessarily, I think, being critical of in the, in the forefront here. He, he's saying, you have heard from the scribes and the Pharisees, you've heard from the religious leaders that you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And he's, and, and at one level, he's saying, you have heard rightly. You shall not murder. You've heard the sixth commandment taught. And as the law of Moses stipulates, whoever murders is liable to judgment, and that would have been capital punishment. You kill, if you shed blood, by your blood shall be set, shed. But what the religious leaders failed to understand was that just because you may not have never murdered, may not have murdered, doesn't mean you're innocent of the sixth commandment. See, God does not merely look at the outside of the person, but he looks at the heart. And the heart of murder, Jesus is going to tell us, 
the root sin underlying the most heinous acts of evil, murder, is the sin of anger. Now we need to think about this carefully. What kind of anger are we talking about? What kind of anger is Jesus talking about? Is there not a place for righteous anger, maybe? Non-sinful anger? Wasn't, wasn't Jesus angry when he entered the temple and he flipped the tables and he drove out the money changers? Wasn't he angry? Well, I think it would be helpful for us to first define anger. I've got a definition for you by Robert Jones, which will be up on the screen. He has a helpful book. I encourage you, if you're struggling with these things, uprooting anger. And he defines it this way. Our anger is our whole person active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. It's full of nuance, isn't it? I, David Powelson's a little bit easier. I think that one's a, I'm against that. <laughs> that one, you, you'll remember that one. But that's basically it. I'm making a moral judgment. That's wrong. I'm against it. And I, I, I'm angry about that. My, it's my active response. And if you know when you're angry, it's, it's not just what you do. It's inside of you. You feel it inside of you. And that's what Robert Jones is getting at. But David Palson just simply makes it an easy statement. I'm against that. And I'm against that to the level that I have to act, really. And so you can see from both of these definitions that, that anger is not necessarily sinful. It doesn't have to be sinful. For this reason, Paul instructs the Ephesians to be angry and do not sin. Moreover, God is said to be angry with sinners and sin, but himself not be sinful. And so the Bible does speak of a, a righteous anger, if you will. And such anger is, is directed toward actual sin as God sees it. It's zealous for God's kingdom, his justice, and his concerns. And it expresses itself in righteousness and purity. I think that's what you see in Jesus cleansing out the temple. In fact, the disciples, when they heard this, zeal for my father's house consumes me. It's a, it's a love for God. And, and maybe you see things in the world, evil acts in the world, and it causes you to be angry with righteous anger. But as Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Because it's a fine line for us. Yes, I can be rightly against something that's truly evil, truly sinful. I can be zealous for God's kingdom, his justice, and his concerns, but I could have the first two points, but verse, but point three, not express it in righteousness and in purity. I can take it as a personal offense upon myself. It quickly becomes unrighteous anger. But righteous anger is not the type of anger Jesus is speaking of here. Jesus speaks of an unrighteous anger, which expresses itself in wishing to cause harm to others. And this may look like insulting someone, verse 22. That's what he says. I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, and you might have a little footnote that says 
Raka. Whoever calls his brother Raka, that's an Aramaic word that means buffoon, empty head. I mean, those are, sounds like playground uh, preschool insults. But the point is, you idiot. Are you stupid? I mean, you can kind of see it. It's abusive language. It's, it's meaning to hurt someone. It's trying to undress them, expose them as inferior. And really, he gets kind of at the same thing, calling someone a fool. As the writer of Proverbs states, Proverbs 29, 11, this anger is giving full vent to your spirit. Full vent to your fury. I'm going to give that person a piece of my mind. Maybe you don't say it that way, but you feel it. And it comes out, and you're going to just let them have it, and you're going to let them know who they really are. And so you lose control, and you respond with fury. And such anger can express itself in various forms. I think David Powelson is helpful as he characterizes five types of unrighteous anger. I think they're up already on the screen. Irritability. That's anger which just slowly simmers. You just you put your pot on the, on the stove, you got it hot, you just want a little simmer. It's not boiling over, but it's just constant. You're just irritable, set on edge. Argumentativeness. An anger that causes interpersonal conflict. Church I was uh, a pastor at, there was, there was one individual who was constantly in conflict. And I remember one time we were, as pastors, talking about this situation. How do, how do we deal with this? And, and the truth was that this person was, at least it appeared, always in the right. But the problem was, the common denominators, they were always the ones in the conflicts. And just because they were right on the matter, the problem was you're contentious. You're always in the middle of stuff. You're always arguing with people. That's a type of anger that's sinful. Bitterness. That's anger that holds a grudge, keeps records of wrongs, and avoids and marginalizes others. You see that person, and it doesn't come out in verbal, but it comes out in the cold shoulder. You know what I mean? Then there's passive anger. That's, that's anger that, that internalizes one's displeasure with another. It's, it's able to put on a good, smiley face. It's Bruce Banner, if you will. Looks harmless, but he's just internalizing it all. Jesus isn't okay with that. And then there's the self-righteous anger, anger that just enjoys the fight, sees it as their way of protecting themselves as, or projecting themselves as morally superior. One who just, hey, I'm going to let everybody know what place they're in because I'm in the right. All these things, and I think you could see them, all these actually just fleshing out the book of Proverbs and the fool. They're just ways by which Sin is eating us up, and it expresses itself in various ways. 
And so the question you and I need to ask ourselves is not whether we're given to anger. But what kind of anger am I often given to? You and I are on that list. And I don't think I have to convince you of it. You know it's true. And so for this reason, Jesus says, whoever is angry with his brother or sister will be liable to judgment. Jesus shows us that the root sin of murder is anger, unrighteous anger. We read this, uh, Pastor Nathan read it from 1 John 3.15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. You see what John's doing. If eternal life is abiding in you, you won't hate your brother, which can lead to murder. And he's, he's playing off the murder of Cain or of Abel by his brother Cain. Now, let me make a qualification here. Jesus is not, nor is the rest of the New Testament, relativizing murder. Uh, There's a common saying amongst Christians, all sins are equal. That's not really true. Jesus isn't saying, okay, you're angry with someone, you, you might as well just murder them. That's not what he's getting at. I don't think anybody would argue that. Well, I've already broken the law, might as well get my money's worth. That's not what Jesus is saying. And I think we know, okay, yeah, not all sins are equal. I guess if you were to, yeah, it'd be better to be angry than to murder. What he's saying, though, is murder begins with an angry heart. And an angry heart is sinful. And the punishment of sin is death. That's what he's getting at. Jesus explicitly defines the judgment. This judgment which is reserved for those who live in unrighteous anger. He uses several terms. It's really he's just saying the same thing in different ways. You'll be liable to judgment. You'll be liable to the council. You'll be liable to the hell of fire. He's not kind of breaking up any hierarchy of judgment. He's just saying it in three different ways and the last one being very explicit. And in verses 25 and 26, Jesus gives a little parable to illustrate the severity of unrepentant anger. And he likens it to the conflict between two people, and he says, assume you're in the wrong, okay? Assume you're in the wrong, and you've got a conflict with someone. And notice what he says in in verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser. That phrase, come to terms quickly, is an idiom which means make friends with your accuser quickly. And and that's, I think, for some of us, just make friends. Be friendly. Because your conflict is going to find you out. It's going to cost you. But he goes on and he talks about some sort of conflict which has obviously raised itself beyond calling someone a buffoon or a fool. This is going to lawsuit. This person's dragging you to court in this analogy, if you will. 
There seems to be a lawsuit filed. Maybe damages have occurred. And, and Jesus says to them, you need to be made right as quickly as you possibly can. And he says, because if you don't make restitution with them, if you don't reconcile with this person, you're going to be handed over to the judge and you're going to be found guilty. He's going to hand you over to the jailer. Then you're going to be put in prison and you're going to pay every last penny you owe that person. As I was thinking of this, um, I honestly, what came to my mind was the scuffle High-profile scuffle between Senator Rand Paul and his neighbor. That was honestly what I was thinking about. Like, that, that, that happens. And if you know anything about that, neighborly war, if you will. And the neighbor just had enough and beat the snot out of him. Broke his six ribs, bruised his lung. And Jesus says, you better make friends with him quickly or you... Or you're going to pay every last penny. And for him, it was $580,000. That was $7,000 in medical, $200,000 in pain and suffering, and $375,000 just for punitive damages, just to say, warn society, don't do this. Jesus is saying, you can go to case after case, and you can see that if your conflict gets to a level by which you harm somebody and you're going to have to pay the penalty here on earth. Jesus is going a little bit further. He doesn't, he's not just giving us advice on how to avoid a lawsuit, although that would be wise to settle out of court. But Jesus' point is this. If you wrong someone out of your anger, which is why you wrong people. And you don't make it right, you'll suffer the consequences from an earthly court, right? How much more will you suffer the consequences before the heavenly court? And that debt, you'll never pay off. That's the thrust. That's kind of the bite between that last phrase. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Oh, you might be able to pay off a $580,000 debt for, to satisfy a human court. But you'll never be able to pay the debt to satisfy the heavenly court. And so with Jesus rightly revealing the true intent of the law, the sixth commandment, he invites us to repentance. That's what Jesus is doing. So come follow me. You can't pay that debt. Come follow me. Come be my disciple. And I will call you to a greater righteousness which cultivates the virtues of the kingdom. In particular, what we're going to see, I think, is the virtue of peacemaking. And brothers and sisters, this should characterize our demeanor. People should see us and say, that person isn't a brawler, that person's a peacemaker. And that's the, their, their demeanor, their, their, kind of the flavor that, that they're giving off. And so then, following Jesus prioritizes reconciliation. We need to understand here the priority of reconciliation. This is, if you want to put it, how we repent. This is what repentance looks like. 
Not just managing anger, repenting of our anger looks like prioritizing reconciliation. Or as Jesus says, make friends. Make friends. We see this priority as we consider the first illustration. I skipped this one. But in verses 23 and 24, Jesus gives an illustration of of an individual, and he's talking to Galileans here. This is a three-day journey where they are from to where you would go to the temple to offer sacrifices, which makes this parable a little bit more jarring, if you will. And he says, imagine you have made that three-day journey, that trek, to offer your animal sacrifice in worship. However, as you approach the altar, you've been standing in line all day, and it's now your turn to offer sacrifice. You come up, you're right before the altar, you're right before the priest, and then you remember. My brother, my sister has something against me. Now, what is he talking about here? He's not saying, oh, I remember someone is upset with me, but I'm not in the wrong. He's talking about you've wronged your brother and sister or you are in conflict with someone. And that comes to your mind. He says, verse 24, leave your gift there before the altar and go and first be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. And there's a little bit of absurdity to this parable. Go hold your place in line, leave your animal, tie it to the altar, and make your three-day journey, go be made right, and then come back. Make another three-day journey and expect everybody else to just hold up in line as you go do that. Well, this is a parable. And he's trying to express the, the urgency, if you will, and the priority. And what's the priority? He is saying, you cannot worship and be in conflict with your brother and sister. You can't pretend to come here and sing praises to God, open up your Bible, and think that you're really worshiping and and soaking it all in, but you are bitter and you are in conflict with another. I'm concerned with your heart, Jesus says. You must have a greater righteousness than the Pharisees. They do that. And so while this is an extreme analogy, the principles are instructive for us. Jesus lays out for us that you cannot be a worshiper and live in unrighteous anger with another. James actually says the same thing. You know this. With our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a a spring pour forth from it both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can salt pond yield fresh water. He's speaking proverbially here. But his point being, if you have been transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ, as John writes, if eternal life abides in you, it's impossible for you to live like this. 
You can't live as one who's constantly in conflict with people. That can't characterize your life. You must be a repentant person. What's his point? You can't claim to be a follower of Jesus if your heart is full of anger. Now notice here, there's some hope. Jesus isn't calling for sinless perfection. We know that because he's giving us a means by which how to actually repent of our sin. And you can only do this if you have put your faith and trust in Christ. So this is not an option for you if you have not bowed the knee to Jesus. You have an angry heart and you're just merely suppressing and, and trying to cover it up. And Jesus says, don't try to cover it up. Kill it and come to me. But as we follow Jesus, as we bow the knee to Jesus, and, and, and every one of us knows that we battle here in some way, Jesus is saying, follow me. Follow me. He's showing us the path of repentance because we will fail. That's not an excuse to say, well, we'll, we'll fail, doesn't matter. No, he's showing us the greater righteousness and how to pursue true godliness as his people. And so if you're a follower of Jesus and you listen to his voice, then you know that you cannot be in fellowship with your heavenly father and harbor bitterness towards another person. You can't do it. This means before we come to worship on Sunday, you need to examine your life and ask God to search your heart and see if there be any grievous sin in it. Next Sunday, brothers and sisters, on the fourth Sunday of the month, we take the Lord's Supper. You need to be reconciled to your brother and sister before you come to that table. You need to. And you cannot come to the cup of the Lord Jesus, and as Paul says, and drink the cup of demons, of bitterness, of anger, and hatred. You can't do that. That's why some are sick, some are ill, and some have even died, Paul says. Because they have taken the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. And so you can see the priority of reconciliation here. You must be reconciled. You must pursue reconciliation. As Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. And notice, blessed are the peacemakers, verse 11, blessed are others when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. You don't get to say, well, I, I was wronged. I had the right to respond this way. No. Blessed are the peacemakers. Even when you are wronged. And we'll get to that in verse 38, retaliation. Verse 43, love your enemies. But it starts here. So the question that we need to address before we leave here this morning is how do you and I pursue reconciliation when we have sinfully expressed our anger with another? How, how, what do we do? What does it look like when Jesus says, verse 24, first be reconciled to your brother or sister? What does reconciliation look like? 
Well, it looks like cultivating the virtues of the kingdom. And so first, and I've got these steps up on the screen. First, you and I must mourn over our own sin. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Brothers and sisters, when God, by his grace, brings your sin to your attention, we must grieve over it. However it comes, and maybe it's like in this parable, you're worshiping right now and you're hearing the words and your heart has been pricked. You've been pierced to the heart and you know I have been living in disobedience and the Holy Spirit's bringing that to mind through the preaching of the word. That's one way. It could be a brother or sister has tried to come to you before and you didn't receive it and you're remembering now. Or maybe it's just the Lord is bringing things to your mind on your own. He does it in various ways. When that happens, do not harden your heart or ignore your conscience. And do not try to forget it or suppress it. That's what the world says to do. Go count to ten, suppress it. Jesus says, no, 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 mourn over it. Grieve, have godly sorrow over your sin. And so second, you then confess your sin. And this is first and foremost before God. And I want you to see these are actually the steps. If you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, these steps are the same steps by which you believe the gospel the first time. And this is how we apply the gospel in our life over and over and over again and say, I believe the gospel today just like I believed it yesterday. And so you confess your sin to God verbally. That's how you don't suppress it. And maybe you're here today and you're saying, I am an angry person. I'm a sinner, Lord. And you confess that before him. You lay bare your heart and you agree with God that your actions, your thoughts and intentions are evil. Call it what it is. Shoot straight with yourself just like you've shot straight with others. Confess that to him. And this, brothers and sisters, is what it looks like, verse 3, to be poor in spirit. You're acknowledging your spiritual bankruptcy before God. And as you do that, this will lead you then to confess your sin to the one you've sinned against. And in so doing, you'll practice, verse 5, meekness. You'll come meekly with gentleness as you specifically confess your sin to another. Oh, this is a whole new ball game, isn't it? Because we like to say, I dealt with that, but we didn't actually pursue reconciliation. The Lord doesn't let us have a half-hearted fellowship with him. He calls us to give our whole life to him. And so you go to that brother or sister and you confess that I was angry with you. I said things that hurt you that were evil, that were sinful, and I have 
I've confessed those things to God and I want to confess where I have sinned against you. And so third, you then ask for forgiveness. This comes out of a brokenness of spirit and godly sorrow. And you say, please forgive me. And you, you, you pray the same thing to the Father. Father, please forgive me in your Son. And if, this, if you've never prayed that prayer, if you've never been reconciled to the Father, this is what you, you confess your sin to him and you say, Jesus, please forgive me. I believe you died on the cross for my sins, that you rose again on the third day and you will come again to judge the living and the dead. And I believe you and I want to follow you. Please forgive me. And the scripture says that he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we confess our sins to him. But that then looks like then confessing it to those we have sinned against. And you ask them, be, please be gracious to me. And brothers and sisters, if this happens to you, you have someone who's coming to you and says, please forgive me, you get to practice the virtue of verse seven. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. You don't get to withhold forgiveness having been bought by Jesus Christ. You don't get to be bitter anymore. And you can see, oh, this will be therapeutic for both parties probably because we'll find out we've probably both been sinful in our dealings in these. And fourth, you make restitution. This is the proof of your repentance. This looks like something. Whatever wrong you have committed toward them in anger, you seek to the best of your ability to make it right. And so if you, for instance, if you slander someone before others, you need to go to those people you slandered that other person before and you need to confess that you were sinful and you, you were wrong. If you made an, your anger public on social media, on your blog, or I don't think any of us have these outlets, but maybe you go on TV. You need to try your best to go to that same medium and make that public. To the level by which you displayed it, you were trying to bring restitution. You're trying to exhibit true repentance. If you broke something out of anger, you stole something, you destroyed something, you, you seek to fix it, return it, or replace it. I think of the story of Zacchaeus. It's what it looks like to follow Jesus. He'd been cheating people out of their money. What happened? After he met Jesus and had his sins forgiven, he goes and makes restitution. Now, is he earning his favor with Jesus? No. He's expressing a genuine love for Jesus, that he is a follower now, and it looks like something. And in doing all this, brothers and sisters, you and I will be practicing the virtues of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. That's our desire. I want God's will to be done, not my will. I want his justice, his concerns, his will, and I, God, is a restoring God. And so I want what he wants. And so that looks like something because I, my desires, he's changed my heart that I can't live in anger. God doesn't want me to live in anger. He wants me to live in peace with my brothers and sisters. And so I'm going to make peace. I'm going to pursue to the best of my ability. Now understand there are things in this life, there are consequences to our sins. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, we can't make full restitution. 
I think about the Apostle Paul. He imprisoned some and murdered, oversaw the, the murder of Stephen. There's no restitution that Paul's able to make fully there. But he makes it as far as he can. You see that in the book of Acts. And when we have sought to, as Jesus says, first be reconciled, and we've done this quickly, we, all of this will result in that we'll have a pure heart, verse 8. We'll be able to come now to worship. We'll be in good fellowship, good standing with one another and our Heavenly Father. And you know, some of you are in sin right now, and it might not be anger, it might be next week, lust. And you know I can't worship as I continue to dabble in these things. My fellowship's broken, and it's, it's breaking all my relationships. Jesus says there's a better way. Come follow me. Be reconciled. And I'll bring reconciliation between you and my Father and you and your friends, your enemies even. So this is what it looks like to follow Jesus when another sins against you or you sin against them. And you do it without delay, or as Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. And in this way, brothers and sisters, will be salt and light, a city set on a hill, and others will see our good works, our peacemaking, our reconciling, our forgiving. And that's what's attractive. And they'll glorify our Father who's in heaven. You see how all this is starting to piece together if you've been with us? And so this morning, no doubt, some of us need to be reconciled with our brother or sister. This may be your spouse, your parents, someone in this room, or even a neighbor, a coworker. And you may need to find someone before you leave today, and you need to say, we need to get together. I've sinned against you. And you don't need to come back next week till you've done so. That needs to be your priority. You need to pursue reconciliation as a follower of Jesus. So before we sing, I'm going to ask Chris and the team to come up. I want us to take a minute in silent prayer and ask God to reveal to us where we are living in unrepentant sin. And that he would give us the grace and strength to make that right, as he calls us to. As you do so, have these words of the psalmist in your mind. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Why don't you pray right now? Jesus, 
This morning we come to you and confess that we fall short of your glory and your righteousness. Please do not let us deceive ourselves into thinking we can live in bitterness and anger toward others. So we ask you to make our sin known to us. Bring it to our minds. Cause our hearts to grieve over it. And grant us repentance. And we thank you, Jesus, that you took our sin upon yourself so that you could lead us in the way everlasting. And so thank you, Jesus, for being merciful to us. And so now as we reflect on your great mercy and grace, Lord, how could we ever withhold that mercy and grace toward anyone? And so, Lord, we pray to you, and we know that you are the God of peace, and that it is your will for us that we would be peacemakers for your honor and your glory. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand and let's sing, Come Thou Fountain.